Welcome to Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. I'm Pranav, and today with Knockin, our guest is John Milinovich, co-founder and CEO of Aesthetic, the tech-enabled creative agency that specializes in branding, web, and product design for startups. We had the opportunity to speak with John about architecture and accounting at UCLA, growing up in a family of entrepreneurs, the importance of phase shifting and fearlessly jumping into new things, selling his first startup to Pinterest, and his new company, Aesthetic. So without further ado, here is our interview. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. Hey, it's great to be here. Because this is a UCLA-themed podcast, one of the things we wanted to do was ask one of the questions that current applicants have to answer as part of the UC application. We think you'll serve as a great introduction for our listeners. So the question is, describe the most significant challenge you have faced and the steps you have to take to overcome this challenge. How has this challenge affected your academic or professional achievement? Hmm. So I think, you know, for me, it's hard for me to not think about the, one of the most impactful moments in my life other than, you know, the passing of one of my parents. Um, you know, my, my mom passed away when I uh, had just graduated from college. And I think, you know, she was sick for uh, quite a bit of my upbringing. Uh, so for me, I think certainly that would have to uh, top, you know, top the list. And I think going through that process of coming together as a family, um, you know, reflecting and dealing with this together, but also learning how to redefine ourselves as individuals, but also our relationship. I think that, you know, taught me a lot about uh, just what it means to, you know, to love, but also what it means to, you know, be a family, to be a team. Uh, and I think a lot of that just authenticity and that kind of just truth that comes with such a powerful event, I think is something that, uh, again, it, it can't help it, but change how you look at uh, pretty much everything. So I think, you know, for me, that was definitely kind of one of the most defining moments of my life. And I think, you know, how I and, and we as a family came out of that was something that uh, I know was, you know, very different than, than it went in. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for being vulnerable. And I think, you know, for listeners out there from, from different families and, and different shapes and sizes, single parent households, kind of what were some of the things that you took away that you kind of re- redefine yourself and, and maybe what's some advice that you can give? Yeah, I think, you know, the, it's the, you know, serenity now, which I think is also an important, you know, thing to remember during these crazy times that we're going through now. It's, you know, uh, you know, give me the strength to be able to, you know, uh, uh, control the things I can and kind of accept the things that I can and feel to know the difference between the two. Because, you know, so I think in, always uh, for me trying to, when I, you know, remember what I actually can do through my own agency versus what are the things that I either have to kind of trust other people or trust the world for, um, it's kind of helped me kind of give up control of the things that uh, maybe I didn't actually have control over in the first place. Thanks for sharing that, John. Absolutely. So we want to take it, because it's a UCLA podcast, take it to your, your time at UCLA. So you ended up majoring in architectural studies and, and you got a minor in accounting. Uh, did you always, what, what initially made you interested in, in architectural studies and did you know you wanted to be an architect at that point in time? Yes, sure. So, 
it's actually kind of funny. People joke that I must have just chosen the first two things in the course book, right? So you need to figure, uh, I promise there was a little bit more, more rationalization that went into it than that. You know, I, I was always interested in business and, you know, came from a family of, of entrepreneurs. You know, both my parents were entrepreneurs and, and so were my grandparents. And so I think for me, I always kind of was exposed to, to business. Um, through my dad in particular, and, and that still is a lot of our relationship, which I, I enjoy, or like one special part of our relationship. Uh, I think for me, being able to actually, you know, learn a more formal study of that was something I was excited to try to get out of my, uh, you know, college career. I think at the same time, I, you know, always had this kind of creative bend to me, right? I've, you know, from the time I got my first computer, I was, you know, an expert user of any software I can get my hands on. You know, I wrote Macromedia, uh, uh, a letter that I've sent, my mom helped me send in the mail when I was in sixth grade and to asking them for free software because I was a student, you know, and they sent, they sent it to me, you know, and I think that really, um, you know, changed the trajectory of even just learning how to, to create things. So I think for college, I was more interested in, in choosing things that I felt like I'd really enjoy and, and be fulfilled by more so than things that I was 100% sure that I wanted to do professionally. Um, I don't think I actually knew that I wasn't going to be or maybe wasn't set out to be a professional architect until, you know, uh, one of the the crits, my, you know, I think first half of my senior year, I think, it, you know, when you're going through kind of this crit process, you put your, you know, work on the wall and, you know, you present it in front of the class, uh, you know, you get kind of a review from your teacher. That's like a really the most important thing for the class. Uh, so, of course, for the week, you know, two weeks ahead of time, everyone's just working around the clock and, you know, practicing printing everything out. So you can imagine there gets to be this this kind of jam that occurs at the printout line and had a conversation with one of the master students, you know, like three in the morning, just asking him, what, you know, why the heck, uh, you know, do you put yourself through this? And, you know, he kind of thought about it for a second and, and said, I guess, I think it's because there's nothing else that I can do. And I think that was a moment when I actually realized this was, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person that likes to grind, but that wasn't kind of the, the hustle that I was, um, I was meant to do. Uh, so fortunately, I still get to work really close, you know, with a lot of really, really creative people and actually found a different kind of path within the, the you know, creative community that was a, was a better fit for me. Um, so again, I, I, I kind of chose what the, that path, not based on, you know, some, you know, certainty that I wanted to be an accountant or an architect, but more that, you know, I thought I'd really enjoy and, and learn from that experience. So it sounds like you found out senior year um, that it wasn't for you in terms of a career, but you enjoyed your, your early classes. Um, what was your experience with those classes? Did you kind of walk around UCLA campus? I know there's a lot of great architecture from Luis to Powell. Yeah, sure. So the interesting thing about UCLA's architecture program, it's a you know two-year program, which is actually one of the reasons I was able to combine it with accounting, which is also one of the heavier minors, and usually it's about a year and a half worth of coursework. So I'd actually find myself kind of definitely on you know far north campus uh, side of things, you know, going between kind of the Anderson type schools and, you know, the uh, uh, over to Pearl off there. And yeah, you know, you can imagine there's like the sculpture garden in the middle of there, you know, he's got some, that incredible new uh, design building and kind of just facilities around there. So yeah, a lot of time just kind of exploring or wandering around there. Actually, you know, I actually got into architecture school with my photography portfolio. Uh, so in high school, you know, I, def I definitely doubled down, we'll say on photography and uh, ended up going through like AP level photography and things like that. And ended up having this um, kind of perspective uh, uh, focus that was actually a lot about, you know, understanding and, and representing architecture in, in different ways. So that, that portfolio was actually what helped me uh, get into architecture in that kind of uh, second and third year. 
Um, so I think, again, for me, a lot of the time was, was literally going between, you could argue some of the most structured deterministic stuff in the accounting side to this very kind of abstract and ethereal and sometimes like philosophical uh, stuff on the architecture side. And I think that was one of the really interesting things was learning how to have that much context shifting and that much phase shifting was actually something that's really useful to me now where, you know, I, I end up having to wear multiple hats uh, every single day. Uh, I think, you know, I definitely learned how to be fearless in jumping into new things and just, you know, accepting that I was a complete noob in kind of everything I was spending my time doing and, and being okay with that. And again, being able to work with my classmates and, you know, get their help and get their feedback and build good relationships with my professors who, uh, you know, were always encouraging and positive. So I think, again, I kind of just learned how to, to be humble, but also not to be scared to try. So it sounds like your, your senior year, you had that conversation with the grad student, you're realizing, man, maybe architecture isn't for me moving forward. How did you kind of, as you're transitioning to graduation and, and looking at jobs, how does that kind of influence your trajectory and where you end up going? Yeah, so outside of my academic life, I was also involved in a lot of on-campus clubs while at UCLA. So it's part of the undergraduate business society, as well as a part of the USAC's uh, student government, uh, working under my friend Addison Huddy, who was, you know, uh, you know, a big name on campus in those days. Uh, a lot of what we were really excited about was how do you actually activate the undergraduate business community and, you know, pull them uh, into, into more engagement with, you know, real life uh, kind of like post-graduation business experience. So we're kind of helping kind of bridge these gaps uh, and, you know, connect kind of the, the, again, students and employers. So I think through that, and I was able to, you know, get into some of the rotation of um, different inter interviewing fairs and things like that, and ended up uh, kind of veering towards a lot of the, the technology employers who had finance departments uh, within them who were looking for people to actually help, again, work at a software company, but kind of in the, the, soft, uh, the finance arm of it. Um, so that was kind of my, my in, inlet, ended up getting, having a great internship uh, experience with, with Yahoo. Uh, and from there, I actually ended up getting a full-time offer to work with them uh, after graduation. Uh, and then that was really how my career in the tech industry uh, started. You're at Yahoo for, for a short stint, um, and then you end up at Google for, for the next two and a half years. Um, tell us about your role then. So really the, I like to see when I look, you know, back hindsight is 2020 as they say. And when I see my, my resume and the, and the jumps that I made, a lot of it has to do with building skills that were the glue between two different roles. So in the finance world, I got really, you know, good with Excel and really good at building models uh, and, and was able to, you know, represent abstract concepts real pretty quickly. Um, and so I think when I was with that kind of set of skills, I was able to actually bridge into kind of like a, a hybrid between a customer support and user insights analyst role at Google, where they're actually helping launch a new suite of commerce products uh, called like Google Offers and Google Wallet, as they were called back in the day. And, you know, the team that I was on was basically tasked with figuring out how does Google you know, support Google scale commerce, which they hadn't actually done before. They'd never actually, you know, had too many products uh, at the time where, you know, end customers were actually paying directly to use it. 
um, again, at that point, it was, it was and certainly still is, you know, Google AdWords and you know, things like Google Cloud. So the, our kind of team's task was figure out how do you actually go and, you know, build out the support operations? How do you train everybody to go do the support? You know, how do you uh, handle all of the customer support tickets and figure out, you know, what people were asking and, and write better documentation or improve the product? So we ended up kind of building that, kind of, you know, that ingestion for all of the questions that people had the an analysis on what people were asking for, and then the product insights to actually help uh, drive our engineering roadmap. So that was both kind of the, the bridge for me into uh, Google, and, and but also the bridge towards more uh, product-oriented work, which is something I was always interested in, but hadn't really uh, spent much time on. That was, so I was, worked on Google Offers for the first uh, year that I was at Google, and then ended up moving into a developer relations role for Google Analytics. Uh, so that ended up being more like a business development role where I was working with uh, all of the you know, startups in the ecosystem who were building uh, software on top of Google, Google Analytics set of APIs. So if a you know, business was using Google Analytics to track their website data, um, there was different apps that you could use to help you do cool stuff with that data. So I was responsible for building out the uh, program and then actually managing uh, to scale that, that uh, engagements with companies who were using that software today so that we could build better case studies and examples for more, more developers in the future. Um, so this was, again, kind of one of those those bridge roles where I ended up um, again, taking my ability to, you know, work with technical teams within Google to get into this other more technical uh, team that was also an external facing role, which was the first time uh, that I'd done that as well. Um, so I ended up working on some cool programs to help against uh, scale developers ability to work on top of Google Analytics, but also promote a lot of the great work uh, that was being done on the platform. So that was definitely the bridge for me to uh, go from Google into the startup world where then I spent and uh, kind of really the next uh, period of my career. So after your time at Google, you uh, formed this company called URX. Kind of what, you kind of talked a little bit about working with startups you know, pulling Google's analytics through APIs and, and kind of helping them through that process. So you definitely had experience there. What kind of gave you that first initiative to venture out onto your own, start your own company and, and try to make a difference as an entrepreneur? Yeah, sure. I'd say there's two big kind of headwinds going on at this point. There's got the kind of personal motivations for wanting to be a founder and an entrepreneur, but there's also the reason that we kind of ended up working on, you know, URX of all the things we could have worked on. At, at a personal level, you know, we, I talked about one of my most defining moments and, but thinking about the other side of my, my life in that way, hey, I, w I had this, I wasn't as scared to go do something that I might fail at. So ultimately, you know, after my mom passed away was right around when we decided to go start URX a couple months thereafter. Uh, but a lot of it was because, you know, there was a lack, the fear of being hurt wasn't, wasn't there. Um, at the same time, again, being from a family of entrepreneurs and, and I kind of convinced myself that I, that was something that like I wanted to be part of my identity, but the only way I was going to really know if it was or if I was any good at it is if I decided to go do it. Um, so, you know, that was, I'd say, like personal part of the timing there. I'd say at a, at a market level, you know, again, 2013, this was a really interesting time. It just had the evolution of, of internet and connectivity. And you figure mobile devices now are just starting to get at scale. Uh, native apps are completely, you know, a thing that's completely clear is the future, but there's still people arguing about it. 
But one of the biggest disadvantages was that apps like were not actually part of the rest of the internet, right? The, the things that actually made the internet be like decentralized and reliable and accessible by everybody actually were kind of the opposite of how apps worked. Um, so actually, even at Google Analytics, they had to basically completely rewrite the entire platform that was carrying 65% of the web's traffic to, to make it work for apps because it was just that different of a paradigm. And we kind of thought about this, this world through that lens of what are all the things that are completely different in a mobile first world. A lot of what we actually realized was that links don't work for apps. And links, which are the whole tenet and principle of having you know, you know, linked hyper or, uh, metadata across you know, uh, multimedia sites, like the core tenets of the web, don't actually work if you don't have links as part of the picture. Um, so that was kind of our thesis for, for URX was how do you actually make links work for apps? Um, and so maybe tell us what, what URX did for, for our listeners that are not familiar and kind of what was the, the base financial plan of, of making it work? Sure, I mean, definitely. It's, I, you know, definitely es it was esoteric, right? It was kind of this really nuanced technical insight that, you know, we thought we could, um, you know, go use to build, take advantage of a, a big shift in a market. Really what it breaks down to is we, we ended up building a, an advertising platform because if you're a commerce provider or if you sell things in your app, you know, you have a lot of incentive to get people into your app, but if you can't actually uh, get people to specific parts, like when you click on an email and it takes you to a specific product that you, that you just bought or, you know, takes you uh, to an unsubscribe link, like if you can't do basic things for your app, you're actually not going to be able to grow your app. So what we ended up building was an advertising platform that helped connect uh, publishers who had lots of content and people engaged with you know, their sports content, their music content, uh, their, their retail content, and connected them to go into apps on their phone where they could go buy contextually relevant products. So you're reading about Drake, you know, on Rolling Stone magazine, and you see a little uh, ad that lets you go listen to the new Drake song inside Apple Music. Um, so we were trying to create these contextual bridges uh, between people who had traffic and people who wanted traffic uh, ended up doing you know, an, enough of a good job about it that we uh, grew to, you know, that called that first scaling plateau. Uh, unfortunately, didn't get too much past that though. You end up raising 15 million for URX um, and, and you go through Y Combinator. For people who don't know about Y Combinator, I think I can give a quick little description. I think they, it's sort of like an accelerator, mini college. Um, you know, fascinating companies have come out like Airbnb, Stripe, and DoorDash. Uh, can you kind of walk us through going through Y Combinator and, and the process of raising money? Yeah, so YC was a really great experience. I think for us, it, it meant a lot to us at the time. Uh, and in retrospect, you know, it was something that was like a, a goal and something we, we wanted to be a part of. But actually going through it, I'll say there, there were, you know, parts of it that completely changed how we were able to build the company, but also uh, my own, you know, understanding of what it means to, to be a founder. Um, getting into YC, you know, you fill out an application and that's, you know, explaining your company in a way that would make sense to a straight, complete stranger, uh, is, which is by itself filling out the application is something that you actually, I personally learned a lot from. Uh, if you are chosen from that, you go into uh, an interview process where you, you know, have an, a 10 minute interview with three of the founder, uh, three of the partners. Uh, and it's again, really rapid fire questions. You know, they, they have process what you're about and they kind of come in asking you the hardest questions uh, possible. 
But the first question is always the same. So, so what are you guys building? Or what are you, what are you all building, excuse me? From there, then kind of, you know, you hear back within half a day, whether you got into the batch or, or you didn't. Um, and again, even for companies that don't, they still, you know, certainly many have go on to be super, super successful. So it's not like you have to go into YC to, to be successful. Uh, I think for us, one of the things that it really helped with was actually help in URX's case was help us just really learn how to explain what we were building through the lens of what our, what problem we were solving versus the solution that we were building with, with software. So we learned us, you know, go from talking about APIs and, you know, deep links to talking about, you know, helping companies grow, you know, their retail business. So I think for us, helping us actually learn how to go to market with, with the technology and how to try things really quickly was something that, you know, we learned in that hundred day period from when they call you saying you got in to the point they put you on stage in front of lots of investors to go raise money. Um, and I'd say that was the other thing that we really got from that first go round with YC was the ability to work with some really, really top notch investors. Uh, so we raised, you know, 3.1 million coming out of my combinator on demo day, you know, did our, our launch to go get that next big batch of users. Uh, and, you know, we were off to the races. So kind of, you, you have this sense of fearlessness as a CEO, um, but you mentioned kind of, you got to understand when to, when the journey ends and, and, you know, getting acquired is no, by no means the end of a journey, but you know, where were you at that time of getting acquired by Pinterest and, and kind of what led you to make that decision? Yeah, good question. So I think at that point we were a 32 person team, you know, things were working, but they weren't working well enough to, to be in hyper growth mode. And as a company, we found ourselves in a position where we would either have to, you know, raise more money to keep on the same path, or we'd have to find another route. And ultimately, because we were in such a hot space, we had a lot of interest from a lot of different strategic uh, partners in, in working with us and uh, had the, the chance to actually go work with Pinterest. Uh, so again, for us, we helped actually create the foundation for what ended up being called the content team at the company to help really drive uh, a lot of uh, understanding of the pins on the platform. So we had the chance to join up with a existing group of just incredible folks and uh, try and fill in some of the gaps where we could uh, across that as well as a couple other, you know, big initiatives for the company. So when you got acquired by Pinterest, you ended up staying with Pinterest and, and working there for a couple of years. Was there ever a thought, you know, I, I've sold my product to Pinterest, I've, I've set them up in a great position, let me try to find a, a different company who where I can build a, or maybe start another entrepreneurial task, but what, what kind of led you to, to join up the team there? Yeah. So I think, first of all, I've, I was always a fan of Pinterest. I, you know, uh, since there were about, you know, 30 folks and, you know, maybe, you know, a million or, or 5 million users, I was, you know, on the platform and really excited about it. Actually interviewed there, uh, I think six months before starting URX, ironically enough. What um, were your interest boards? Like what were your kind of interests? A lot of it was architecture, like we talked about earlier. A lot of it was, you know, graphic design because, you know, I've, then way into that the, since before aesthetic. Um, so I think, yeah, I was, I would use the platform and just try to understand what were people doing with it today? You know, what, what were nascent behaviors people could do about it? And I got really excited about what it, you know, could be on the advertising side. And that was the thing that, again, coming from some of the, the world that I was in before, I just was really excited about, uh, you know, how Pinterest could monetize in a different way from, you know, Google or Facebook and it's kind of something in, in the middle. So when I, that was, again, when I 
when we had those initial conversations and again talking to some of these these uh, people who we would you know have the chance to to work with or work under um you know something that seemed like both a great opportunity for for urx uh, but also and kind of uh kind of the next chapter in in that realm but also at a personal level to get to grow uh from a, again a really great group of people uh in a way that i and really wouldn't get to do if I was kind of out on my own. So then at your, your second time founder now with Aesthetic, um, kind of you have some of that experience under your belt and, and you've been able to kind of get some of the ground level experience at Pinterest and then kind of learnings as you mentioned from them. How did the idea originate for, for Aesthetic and, and what were some of those key learnings the second time around? Yeah, so I think the key insight for aesthetic is that every company needs design. Anytime that a company puts something out into the world, it, it's designed, whether they actually think about it or not. And as markets become more competitive, the stakes get even higher for how companies have to actually stand out from their competition. So the need for design is growing, you know, as fast, if not faster than you know, the number of businesses that are uh, registered, the amount of posts that are on Instagram and Facebook, the size of the web, right? So really the, the amount of designed things is just increasing at an extraordinary rate. But yet the way design is done is still in a lot of ways completely the same as it has been done forever, which is, you know, basically, you know, with, with completely with humans. Uh, and you have some of the most expert humans in the world that are using an incredible uh, and an involving set of tools. But at the same time, they're still doing a lot of things that uh, are not creative or they're rote work or they're things that actually, uh, you know, ultimately they, they don't need to be doing, right? So you have all of this, this increasing need for design alongside this bottleneck of, of, of how creativity is being applied. And we saw that as, as, a, as an opportunity, you know, as, as founders, we knew that we needed design uh, from when we started all the way through, you know, when we got acquired by URX, excuse me, by Pinterest. And we also uh, certainly at Pinterest saw how important design was as part of their culture. You know, same thing, uh, you know, shown through at, at Google and at Yahoo before. So he said, but hey, I, as startups, like design was really hard for us. So why can't we just make it really easy for startups to, to get access for design? And why can't, what if we, could actually do that at scale because we changed how the design was done. And instead of it having it only be done with humans, what if we could also automate a lot of the work that wasn't actually creative? So again, this was this thesis of like semi-automation was something that you know we've been thinking about since the beginning. So you just kind of mentioned there the the importance of design, especially for, for startups. Wondering if maybe you could share an example or two or, or some use cases of um, kind of how you've you've helped and maybe a company you've partnered with or even if you can't give the name maybe sure. what industry they're in and kind of what you've you've done yeah one uh, yeah we could totally talk about names and uh, i love uh, talking about the awesome stuff our customers are doing so one of the actually awesome nonprofits that we've had the chance to work with they were actually uh, went through yc as well it's a company called uh, serum and then they have a kind of sister company called good pill uh, and ultimately what they're trying to to do is kind of uh, reimagine the future of healthcare by actually helping connect people with surplus medications. Because there's actually a lot of medical waste that happens where, you know, people basically have prescriptions that, that they still don't get used, right? And there's other people who need prescriptions and can't get them, right? Well, you know, we had the chance of working with, you know, these, this incredible, incredible team. You know, their CEO, Adam, was just a great partner uh, to our creatives. 
you know, we have, had the chance to, to brand them and help them build out their, their full website, their incredible illustrations and visual style. And again, make it accessible to, you know, to a nonprofit that would have, uh, in most situations, not have been able to, to get access to the, this level or quality of design, uh, you know, unless it was, you know, be done as like a pro bono work. Um, so again, for us, that was really where it was, we were excited to see that the model was, you know, really truly working. So speaking of uh, brand design and, and kind of making sure that you're sticking to some principles and that those vary based off of the, the beholder, uh, your company recently went to undergo, you know, went through a, a, a rebranding from Play-Doh to Aesthetic. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about maybe some of the principles that you use to, to help make that, that change. Yeah, absolutely. Part of even choosing Play-Doh in the, f the first place was meant to be a placeholder. You know, we kind of knew from the beginning this this kind of core set of uh, philosophy about where, what human creativity was and ultimately what could be automated and what couldn't be automated. And, and there was, and to us, a lot of the represent, uh, Plato's theory of forms was actually something that kind of represented that to us. It actually reminded us a lot of what we had, had read and been hearing about in uh, machine learning research with things called generative algorithms or, or GANs and kind of how they understood or represented forms enough to actually create them. We've all seen those, those faces where you can have the smile go to not smiling or morph from like Donald Trump into you know, someone else. Uh, those are all based on a similar type of technology that from our understanding, it's basically could under, understand things kind of like you know, Plato's theory of forms. Um, so when you thought about kind of this company whose mission was to semi-automate you know, design, you know, that name and kind of uh, that kind of uh, uh, theory of forms was something that represented kind of a, a North Star. Um, we knew Plato wasn't a unique name in the market. Uh, you know, there's a lot, there were other startups that were called Plato. You know, there was even, I think one of the first software companies of all time was actually called Plato. And they also have the name uh, trademarked, right? So we kind of knew that it wasn't unique enough to, to build a long-term viable brand. Uh, for us as a company, you know, when we knew that it, we kind of knew that it was time to start to have a go to market and actually have a, a, a bigger presence when we were able to actually start to offer our services at a bigger scale than they were before when some of the software that we had been working on would kick in. Um, and kind of right around that time, we knew that it was, we should also come up with and establish, you know, the brand that we want for the long term. So when we, that was kind of the timing of, of the decision. And when we actually went into uh, to make figuring out what is what name do we want to be called? There's a couple different avenues for that and different schools of thought. You know, we just tried the bottoms up approach of, you know, coming up with lots of different uh, English words that, you know, uh, I, we prefer were like full words or that actually were, were show up in the dictionary. Um, it's this, almost like how you chose your majors. In, in a joke yeah, exactly. Just starting at the top of the list and yeah. pretty much moving to the bottom. Right. Exactly. Right. You can see there's a there's a theme here. Um, but we, but we literally, you know, yeah, aesthetic was just the first design word uh, in the dictionary that, uh, you know, had the domain, we could get by the domain name. That, that's really what I should say. Um, but yeah, yeah we, we basically came up with, you know, a list of, of different, you know, uh, words that we like, different root words that we liked. We tried different, you know, combinations of mixing and matching, you know, came up with a short list of, you know, five or six, and then started doing a little more research on the d domain name availability side. Uh, and when we saw that aesthetic was actually, uh, available or, or was open, you know, for sale. Um, that was, I think, kind of when we knew that was, it, we might have found a winner. Um, but again, for us, the thing we love about it is, is, you know, 
aesthetic it, it has actually a couple different meanings it, you know when you're talking about a specific thing here you can talk about it, the aesthetic of the graphic which is talking about the style that it was it was done in when you're actually looking at a portfolio of work and you talk you could refer to the aesthetic as like the underlying principle behind why it was done and that was the thing that really got us excited about having a, a, a branding or a design agency that was called aesthetic because ultimately that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to help companies put their put their foot in the ground and actually define what their style is and actually you know the cool thing too is that uh, people associate aesthetic with just being beauty whereas i think the cool thing is beauty is so much more than just skin deep and that actually the way that we get to work with with founders and the way that we actually get to help you know work with companies it, it in some cases completely changes the trajectory of of them in the market so i think for us uh once we kind of saw this fit on the name it was something that we could actually really start to to sink our teeth into and then of course once you have the name you go through we go through our own process of you know defining our, our logo coming up with our full you know our visual identity which actually happens before we do create the logo uh come up with your your fonts and your color palettes which then lets you you know create your website uh that visual identity helps you decide what your illustrations are you know all of that ends up then feeding through to a finished product that you know helps us again have a have a single voice and a single opinion about uh, how the, these two worlds of creativity and automation will, will come together. And you guys just have raised a $3.1 million seed. Yeah, that's, that's right. We, we, we had the chance to do that after we did YC in summer 2018. Uh, and then, you know, we're kind of staying in stealth for a while before we were ready to announce that. Uh, so again, ended up uh, announcing that uh, back in April. So kind of our final two questions are usually what's your favorite UCLA memory? And then who's your favorite Bruin? Favorite UCLA memory. I think, so there's, it's, I think I've had like social examples of this, you know, where again, I had built incredible relationships with uh, a lot of my, you know, uh, SIGEP fraternity members, a lot of the architecture community and just my, the, you know, UCLA 2010 class overall. I think one of the silly examples that I think kind of tops it off for me uh, was, you know, writing from, you know, south of campus up to the architecture building, you know, on my, you know, uh, blue moped, which I had at the time, you know, just like hauling butt because I was, you know, maybe going to be a few minutes late to my last architecture crit, you know, getting there, you know, right on time to, you know, step on stage and, you know, do the best presentation I had at the time. Uh, but again, kind of actually being at home, we're touching, doing some of the final touches with my you know, roommates cheering on beforehand. Uh, I think that was still stands out as like one of the, like the most memorable uh, to at least kind of, you know, be a capstone on, you know, what was a really, you know, great experience for a lot of different reasons. Other than John Wooden, you know, I got to go with, you know, one of the other uh, Johns, maybe I'm biased here, you know, uh, you know, John Anderson, right? So, you know, Anderson School, uh, you know, made his career, you know, being one of the first big distributors of Budweiser, but also, you know, obviously a benefactor for a lot of, uh, the UCLA business program, which I was, you know, thankful to go through. So I got to, got to go with Mr. Anderson on this one. And, you know, if you go alphabetically for, you know, how most names. Yeah, exactly. Are Just start, start from, start from the top and work my way down, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thanks so much for, for joining us on brewing one ear and out the other, but before we let you go, uh, feel free to give us a 30 second plug for something going on in your life. Yeah. So again, we're at this aesthetic where, you know, continually taking on new clients for, you know, brand web and product design work. Uh, our brand design uh, starts at $3,000. Uh, awesome for a lot of folks in the audience who might be, you know, working on their own startups and just getting going. 
but again, anytime you're, you're interested in using design to help you grow faster or become more valuable, we'd love to have you check us out at aesthetic.com. Thanks again to John Alinovich for joining us on the podcast. And feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or guest recommendations. Hopefully everything we talked about today didn't go brew in one ear and out the other.